We're looking at Philippians chapter 2 today. We have moved on in the last week from uh, looking at the decision-making process in renewal to implementation, and I want to read about that from Philippians chapter 2, and I'll be reading verses 12 through 16. Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. Do everything without complaining or arguing so that you may become blameless and pure children of God without fault in a crooked and depraved generation in which you shine like stars in the universe as you hold out the word of life in order that I may boast on the day of Christ that I didn't run or labor for nothing. How many of you remember the term sit-in? Okay. Some of you are not telling the truth. I'm looking at you. (laughs) You remember that term. When I was a kid, college students were holding sit-ins on campuses around the country to protest the war. They would occupy campus buildings, you know, maybe the administration building, and just sit on the floor. Uh, Students, sometimes profs, they filled up every square foot of floor space, and in so doing, they disrupted business and sort of made a general nuisance of themselves. And sooner or later, the campus police or the police would come and break it up, carry a few of them off, maybe arrest a few kids, sometimes sit down next to them. Well, we had a sit-in at my high school. Well, I can't exactly remember why. I think we might have been protesting cafeteria food. Our ideals were not as altruistic as some. As we've been talking about the process of transformation, what I've been calling renewal, and have seen that it includes the components insight, decision, and implementation, I want us to understand that insight and decision are cerebral, or maybe soulful. Insight and decision are things that could take place at a sit-in. Implementation is different. It's active. It takes effort. It's work. Salvation is not a sit-in. It's a workout. That's the big idea of this message. Salvation is a workout. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it's God who's at work in you. Now, whenever I use the word salvation and work in the same sentence, I know that someone in the crowd is going to get jittery worried that I'm going to teach some kind of work salvation. But don't forget that long before I used those two words in the same sentence, the Apostle Paul did. Work out your salvation. Salvation's a workout. It's not a sit-in. If your salvation rouses you to no effort, there's something wrong. When Paul wanted to describe our role in salvation, he chose the word the NIV translates as work out. The Greek word has the idea of working at something until it's accomplished. So, for example, the Bible uses this word of cultivating the ground and of building a house. The ground is cultivated with the intention of planting a vineyard. The house is built with the intention of taking up residence. In both cases, the idea of working is to accomplish something. 
The vineyard will be finished so that you can eat its grapes and drink its wine, the house, so that you can move in and live in it. Now, when the Bible talks about planting a vineyard or building a house, it's talking about good things. But the same word can be and is also used of working evil. In Romans 2.9, Paul writes about people who work, it's exactly this word, who cultivate, who build evil. They work like a farmer works a field. And one day it'll come ripe and then they'll be served evil on a platter. They work at it as a builder builds a house and one day it'll be completed and then they're going to have to live in it. The NIV translates this Greek word as continue to work out your salvation. That translation attempts to express the ongoing nature of the present verb. This work is not something you do and then are done with. The salvation inside you is so big, it's going to take a lifetime to work out. There is so much potential in God's salvation that you can't unpack it in a couple of years or even in a lifetime. It'll take an eternity. If you're expending no energy in unpacking that salvation in your salvation workout, if you never break a sweat, never feel a doubt, never strain under temptation, you're not doing it right. It's like spending an hour at the gym. If you never break a sweat, you never strain against the weights or get your heart rate up into triple digits, you're not doing it right. Paul didn't say talk out your salvation. He said work out, or it could simply be translated work. Work your salvation. The Greek root in this word is erg, erg, which means work. We get our words like energy and ergi, from that word, ergonomics, even allergy comes from this word. In the church, we often hear that salvation is by grace and not by works. And that is solid biblical truth. But we need to make sure we're not drawing the wrong conclusion from that truth. We can mistakenly assume that because salvation does not result from our work, it will not necessitate our work. That is a serious error. Salvation does not result from work, but it does result in work. As Philip Melanchthon put it, we are saved by faith alone. But faith that saves is never alone. It walks in company with its dear friend, work. The wall of separation that's been built between salvation and work is founded on a misunderstanding, or at least a too limited understanding, of what biblical salvation is. We misunderstand salvation when we think of it only in future terms, of getting into heaven when we die. If that's all there is to salvation, then there's certainly no place for work because we all know we can't work our way to heaven. But salvation has a past and a present dimension as well as a future one. Salvation is not just an event in your future, as important as that is. And I hope it is in your future. But that's only the case if you've received eternal life through faith in Jesus Christ. Salvation is more than getting into heaven when you die. There's a past dimension to it. He saved us, not because of righteous things we've done, but because of his mercy. That's past tense. It refers to what God has done through Christ on the cross. There's also a present tense to salvation. You are receiving the goal of your faith, even the salvation of your souls. That's present tense. It's something that's happening right now. 
Paul wrote, the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. Us who are being saved, it's present tense. It's something that's happening now. Salvation is now as well as then. So salvation is out of eternal death, but it's also into a new kind of life. Don't miss that. If you make salvation something that only happens after death, you effectively disassociate it from anything that happens in life, leaving it irrelevant. Now, you'll retain an important truth. You can't accomplish salvation by doing good works, but you'll lose an important truth as well. We need to know that our works, religious or otherwise, will not result in salvation, but we also need to know that our salvation will result in work. We are created in Christ Jesus unto good works. Salvation and work are inextricably bound. Now, if that worries you, if it gives you the theological heebie-jeebies, just remember this. The grace of salvation is not and never has been opposed to work. How could it be? It's the foundation of our works. It is opposed, though, to merit. You cannot earn your way. Won't happen, can't happen. But if you think that because you can't work your way to salvation that you won't have to work out your salvation, you're mistaken. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Notice Paul calls it your salvation. That's interesting because the Bible doesn't usually do that. The Bible usually calls it God's salvation. Salvation belongs to our God. That's what the crowds say in Revelation chapter 7. I long for your salvation, your salvation, O Lord, the psalmist says. Sovereign Lord, my eyes have seen your salvation, Simeon says. Salvation, you see, is not your private possession. It's bigger than that. It's bigger than you. It's the salvation of God. It originates with him and it comes from him. But when the salvation that comes from God intersects your life, it becomes your salvation. comes from God, but you must receive it. Yes, it's more than just personal. Make sure it's not less than personal for you. God's salvation must become your salvation. It is difficult to work, to cultivate salvation when it's not yours. And it can't be yours until you receive it. Now, you can do all the things anyone else does. You can read the Bible, you can pray, you can go to church, you can take communion, you can teach a Sunday school class. You can serve the needy. But until salvation is yours, through a decision to trust Jesus Christ as your leader and Savior, you're just a squatter on the property, trying to cultivate someone else's field. Now, you need to understand this. Salvation not only comes from God, this is really important to grasp because we don't live like it and to our great loss. Salvation not only comes from God, it comes with God. In fact, when God gives us salvation, he gives us himself. That's why the prophet Isaiah can say, surely God is my salvation, a theme that we see throughout the Old Testament. It's the presence of God that makes the difference, that changes us. Changes the way we think, the things we desire, the person we're becoming. 
His presence with us saves us, and it does that in a variety of ways. Let me name a few. Salvation is salvation from our sins. When the angel announced the coming birth of a Savior to Joseph, he told him, he will save his people from their sins. Whenever Paul talks about salvation, salvation from sin is never far from his mind. God wants to free us both from the penalty and our slavery to sin. Salvation is also an escape from the corruption of a warped culture. Hillary was talking about what is a warped culture. Our culture is warped too. St. Peter says to his hearers, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. See, when we work our salvation, we work out our salvation, we experience the difference that God makes in the midst of a culture that doesn't know him. We work out what it means to love in a culture of hate. We work out what it means to forgive in a culture of revenge, to give in a culture of greed, to live for others in a culture of selfishness. If you think that's not work, you're mistaken. God's salvation also rescues us from the trouble that's coming. We're told again and again in Scripture that God will not put up with hate and greed and revenge and selfishness forever. He's going to bring an end to it. And there will be, this is St. Paul talking to the Romans, trouble and distress for every human being who does evil first for the Jew and then for the Gentile. But glory, honor, and peace for everyone who does good first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. Someday God will bring an end to evil in this world, wherever it's found. But because his salvation has reached us and become our salvation, he will not bring an end to us. If it has not reached us, we're in a bad place. There's another dimension to this. Uh, I've mentioned so far that salvation is salvation from something, from sin, from corruption, from trouble, but we're also saved to something. Paul calls it salvation in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. It's salvation to glory, salvation to well-being. It's renewal, salvation to the full. The word salvation actually has the idea of health to it, of being whole, being what we're supposed to be. But God never intended us to keep salvation to ourselves. He wants us, he wants you to extend his salvation to everyone else. That you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. That's what the Lord commanded. Salvation from sin, from wrath, from death, from corruption. Salvation into life and glory, into being who we were always supposed to be. Paul tells us to work this salvation, to work out in English, but just to work or to cultivate or to prepare in Greek, like working the soil. Work this salvation in fear and trembling. Now, in the Bible, that phrase is only found in Paul's writings. And this is interesting. When he uses it elsewhere, he is not. This has surprised me. He's not using it to describe the attitude we ought to have toward God but rather the attitude we should have toward one another. 
He's calling us here to be serious about our salvation, to help each other in it. Salvation is a big deal. It's the big deal in your life. And we mustn't take it lightly. In his book, First Things First, Roger Merrill writes about a business consultant who decided to landscape his grounds. He wanted to landscape his house, wanted it to be beautiful. So he hired a woman with a doctorate in horticulture to do the job. Because he was a really busy guy and he traveled a lot, when he was talking to her, he kept emphasizing the need to create a garden in a way that would require little or no maintenance on his part. He wanted automatic sprinklers and anything else that would save him time and trouble. Finally, in the midst of walking around the the grounds, she said to him, look, there's one thing you need to deal with before we go any further. If there's no gardener, there's no garden. It's like that when it comes to working our salvation. There are no labor-saving devices that are going to take your place. Fruitfulness requires time and attention and care. God has so much for us. But the abundance of God, as a wise man has said, is not passively received, and it doesn't happen by chance. The abundance of God is claimed and put into action by our active, intelligent pursuit of it. Of course, we can't do this purely on our own. But that doesn't mean we mustn't act. We must act. Well-directed, he says, decisive and sustained effort is the key to the keys of the kingdom and the life of restful power. Now, Paul has urged his friends to work. Work your salvation. Work out your salvation. Be serious about it. Now, look what comes next. Verse 13. Be serious about it because God is the one working in you both to will and to act according to his good purpose. You work because God is working, not because he's not. You work with him rather than instead of him. You work out what God is working in. And notice that he is working in you both to will and to act according to his good pleasure. That fits very well with our now familiar pattern of insight, decision, implementation. God is working in us to will. That is to decide and to act. That is to implement our decision in ways that are good. Do you realize that when you trusted Christ, when you made that decision, God was working in you? It's not like you came up with that on your own. When you decided to quit some destructive behavior or to engage in some loving service, God was working in you. The decision over which you prayed and fretted, that decision that you made and then made again and again, you made With God's help, he was at work in you to will, that is to decide, to choose. He doesn't force you to choose his way, but neither does he leave you to your own devices. He's working in you even before you decide to work with him. And once you've made a decision, he continues to work in you to act, to implement your decision for good. He doesn't leave you alone to work it out by yourself. He helps you in a variety of ways, most of which you're not even aware. Salvation and the renewal process are work. But thank God you don't need to work alone. He was at work before you got on the scene. 
He is still at work, and you can join him. Now, it's true. This is, Jesus said this in, in John chapter 15, verse 4. It's true that without him, you can do nothing. And we heard that many times. Without him, you can do nothing. But as Dallas Willard put it, if you do nothing, it will most assuredly be without him. If you decide to do nothing, don't expect his help. Have you ever gone to help somebody who's doing some labor-intensive job? You see them working, you say, I'm going to help. And as soon as you join in, he or she stops. It's as if they think, well, if you're going to do this, I'll go do something else. But you intended to work with them, not work in their place. That's like God. He does not work in us so that we can do nothing. He works in us so that we can do something with him. That's the key phrase, with him. Like a wise and loving dad, he enjoys working side by side with his kids. He just loves it. John Ortberg says that spiritual transformation, think Reuel now, is a long-term endeavor that involves both God and us. He likens it to crossing an ocean. Some people, he says, try Boy, they try day after day to be good, to become spiritually mature. They're like people rowing a rowboat across the ocean. It's exhausting and usually unsuccessful. Others give up trying, and they throw themselves entirely into, as they say, relying on God's grace. Oh, it's all what he does. I'm just going to trust him. Orbrook says they're like drifters on a raft. They do nothing but hang on and hope that God will get them there somehow. But neither trying to do it all by yourself nor drifting in the hope that God will do it all for you is going to bring about renewal. A better image, Ortberg says, is a sailboat. It, if it moves at all, it moves as a gift of the wind. We can't control the wind, but a good sailor discerns where the wind is blowing and adjusts the sails accordingly. Our job is to work with the Holy Spirit, which you may remember Jesus compared to the wind in John chapter 3. We have a part in discerning the winds, in knowing the direction we need to go, and in training our sails to catch the breezes that God provides. And see, that requires well-directed, decisive, and sustained effort on our parts. Remember the big idea of this sermon? Salvation is a workout, not a sit-in. Now, there's a difficulty in talking about the implementation stage of renewal because we're all at different places in our spiritual development. For one person, implementation will require forgiving an offender. For another, it'll mean digging into Scripture. For yet another, it will mean connecting to the church in some fresh way. For someone, it may mean taking a risk and serving others. But there are some principles to remember, no matter where we are in our spiritual growth. We've gone over a couple of these principles already. Let me just state them again in another way. First, it takes effort. Following Jesus is not for the lazy. We're going to work. Second, our work is not in lieu of God's work, but in light of God's work. We work with him, not in place of him. Another principle can be found in verse 14. Do everything, that is, forgive, 
maybe for one person, dig into Scripture for someone else, start a ministry, whatever the work is that God has you doing with him, do it without complaining or arguing. That is implementation 101. Do it without complaining or arguing. Years ago, I was rowing a boat into a stiff wind on a cool October day. Yes, I've taken a lot of abuse for this. Yes. It was easy rowing out. I had the wind behind me in a, a little rowboat with a little wooden rowboat that weighed about a thousand pounds. I was rowing out with two other guys in the boat with me. And that was fine because I had the wind behind me. But rowing back was crazy hard. It was a cool day, but I mean, in a matter of minutes, I was sweating. And pretty soon, I thought I was going to have a heart attack. And it was only then that I noticed that the anchor was out that I was pulling it stroke by stroke through the muddy, mucky bottom. Complaining and arguing is like that anchor. When we do it, we have to work much, much, much harder, and we make far less progress. Don't complain and argue. Weigh anchor and go. Then verse 15. That you may become blameless and pure, children of God without fault, in a crooked and depraved generation in which you shine like stars in the universe. I like the word become. There's a, there is um, hope in that word. If you actually implement your decisions, if you work out the salvation that God has worked in and do it without complaining and arguing, you will stand out from the people around you. They'll notice you. They they won't be able to help but notice you. And that will provide you opportunities to, verse 16, hold out the word of life. Your life will provide the perfect backdrop for your words. See, the most effective witnesses are not people who know the most Bible verses or the best talkers or the most persuasive Christian apologists. They are the people who are actively working out their salvation, doing it seriously, doing it without grumbling and complaining. Living the with God life. So let me ask you this. Have you been working out? Let's pray. Thank you for working in us. Not because of righteous things we've done but because of your mercy. Thank you for not giving up on us when we've used all kinds of excuses, even theological ones, to justify our inaction and our laziness. Thank you for staying with us. Lord, give us the life that is full of you. the with you life that you always intended for us to have and for which your son, Jesus Christ, died and rose again. We ask this in his good name.